This New Testament reading comes from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gospel reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 24. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we uh, confess that we need your help deeply. Uh, we need your spirit to wake us up. We need your spirit to make us alive together with Jesus. Uh, we need your spirit uh, to give us a love for you and a love for others. Uh, and so we ask that you would be here with us. And we ask that you would bless us. And that as we sit with your scriptures, that you would open them up, that you would make our hearts burn within us and that we may behold the glory of Christ such that we might be changed more and more into his likeness as those who love you and love our neighbor in Christ's name. So be with us now, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So shortly before the pandemic hit, I read a book uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. It's by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and professor at NYU. He did his PhD uh, here at UPenn. Uh, Greg Lukianoff is a First Amendment attorney uh, with a background uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a really fascinating book. And they basically, uh, they open with this, with this sort of humorous but fictional interchange, uh, talking about a, a trip to Greece uh, and, a, and visiting like a, a sage that uh, it's, it's sort of a parable that they tell. And the sage, you know, they, they find him and he communicates the wisdom of this age and these three great truths which uh, they then go on to expose as what they're calling three great untruths uh, that have spread widely in recent years that Haidt and Lukianov see as being actually uh, beneath some of the more troubling features of our social landscape today. 
And the three great untruths, as they call them, are these. Number one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So avoid pain, avoid discomfort, avoid all potentially bad experiences because if it's hard, it is harmful. If it challenges you, it is unsafe. That's, that's the great untruth, number one. Uh, number two, always trust your feelings, never question them. And Greg Lukianoff, with his background in cognitive behavioral therapy, points out how uh, anyone who does anything in, in the psychological field will tell you that feelings so often mislead us that it's impossible to achieve mental health until you have learned to question your feelings and find the freedom from some of those common distortions of reality that so often shape our thinking and feeling and our reflexes of reactivity. And then thirdly, the third great untruth that they see is this one that life is a battle between good people and evil people. And some people are good and some people are bad. And it's up to the good people to solve the world's problems by exposing the badness of the bad people and to fight evil by assembling a coalition of the righteous who will shame the bad people into changing their ways. And so these are the, th the three that they've identified uh, in their study of, uh, of really social shifts over the last seven or eight years. And while they say, while many propositions are untrue, in order to become classified as what they would call a great untruth, an idea must meet three criteria. Number one, it contradicts ancient wisdom. The ideas that are found widely in the wisdom literature of many cultures from across time and space. Number two, it contradicts modern psychological research on well-being. And number three, it's harmful, that it actually harms individuals and communities who embrace it. And so Lukianoff and Haidt, when they go on to argue that these great untruths lie beneath some of the social ills that they see and the, the policies and the political movements that draw upon them, they start to flag specific things that they see as symptomatic of these truths taking root in our thinking and uh, living in society. And they flag specific problems like teen anxiety or depression and suicide they flag the rise of ideological and political extremism on both the far right and the far left. Uh, they flag the increasing ideological uniformity of culture on college campuses, and they'll track a history of how, you know, in the 1990s, an idea that would have been ge generally considered offensive to everyone on campus is now considered unsafe. And so what used to warrant rebuttal by way of argument now warrants the uninvitation, the disinvitation of a speaker who is viewed as threatening, right? The rise of call-out culture on social media, the normalization of public shaming for even well-intentioned but uncharitably interpreted comments, and they attribute many of these symptoms and the seismic shifts in our culture we've seen around them as actually stemming from the widespread of these three great untruths, which have found a kind of plausibility and life uh, in the, the second half of this most recent decade, they argue, than they had previously. And so they trace several historical storylines to offer an explanation of how we got here. They also offer like a very pragmatic way forward that's basically about doing the opposite of what these three great untruths tell you to do, like go 
seek out challenges because it's impossible to grow otherwise. They won't kill you. Uh, there's no growth without pain. Or like number two, free yourself from cognitive distortions and learn that rather than always trusting your initial feelings, the only way to mental health is to realize that you have to learn how to question them. You have to learn how to manage your own impulses. And then thirdly, to take a generous view of other people and to look for nuance rather than assuming the worst about people within a simplistic us versus them morality. It's really a fascinating book, and in many ways it's compelling. It rings true to me in a lot of ways, but the reason I bring it up this morning is that I think it actually provides a helpful backdrop for us against which we might consider what it means for us to be a community that's committed to the practice of reading, hearing, and reflecting on Scripture. So this summer, we're going through this series called The Ties That Bind Us, in which we're considering various beliefs and practices that are central to our community here as Resurrection Philadelphia. And as we're coming back together after the long COVID separation, and as we're coming together for the first time as a newly merged church, we're wanting to spend some time focusing on some of the main things, the things of first importance, the beliefs and the practices that are central to our life together. We're also wanting to do things together, to connect relationally, which is why we're hanging out this afternoon at Lemon Hill Pavilion in Fairmount Park. So let me just plug that from 4 to 6 p.m. Come and join us. BYO picnic and lawn games or musical instrument or whatever you want. Come and hang out. It should be a good time. Um, might be a little muggy, but the company will be good. And if you bring good food, then the food will be good. So, you know, we own it together. So we're doing things, but we're, we're reflecting on things as we think about what it means for us to be this church, Resurrection Philadelphia. And specifically today, that focal point that we're zeroing in on is scripture. And what does it mean for us to be a community that holds scripture at the center of our life together? And the reason I bring up the coddling of the American mind and Haidt and Lukianoff's work uh, is that I think they put their finger on something really, really important. That our way of life is always learned. It's never just a given. We're never simply our own person with our own individual thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and values, but we exist inside of a society. And we learn how to live and how to think and how to feel from other people that we're doing life with. And I think that's really, really important because what another way to say that is we are always and inescapably disciples as human beings. That's just who we are. We are, we are disciples. We are followers. We are learners. And Dallas Willard, one of my favorite writers and thinkers about the Christian faith, uh, he focuses a question and on this discipleship, and he just asks provocatively, who teaches you? Whose disciple are you, honestly, he writes. One thing is sure, you're somebody's disciple. You learned how to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions to this rule, for human beings are just the kind of creatures that have to learn and keep learning from others how to live. Probably you are the disciple of several somebodies. And it is very likely that they shaped you in ways that are far from what is best for you or even coherent. And as Haidt and Lukianoff, I think, helpfully named some of the troubling symptoms of our own situation and some of the underlying causes that expose our deep need for a better kind of wisdom that is more useful 
for flourishing than much of the wisdom that is available for us widely today. Willard, I think, helpfully focuses the question on the source of that wisdom. Who teaches you? Whose disciple are you? And as we've been saying all summer, as we've been doing this series, The Ties That Bind Us, is that we want to be a community that is thoroughly committed, deeply committed to organizing our life together collectively and individually around Jesus. Resurrection Philadelphia is a community that is committed to following Jesus, to living our lives as Jesus's students and friends and coworkers in the world. And one of the things that we've already seen in our series this summer, when we start thinking about what does it mean that Christ is central in our life together, uh, really two things. One is that Jesus is the one who reveals to us what God is like, and Jesus is also the one who reveals to us what human flourishing is all about. And those are both kind of like equally important as we think about what it means to be alive as humans in God's world today, right? We believe that Jesus is the one who reveals to us what God is like. Jesus, we confess that he's God in person in the world. Or as the gospel writer John says, the word of God made flesh who came to live among us. Or as the apostle Paul says, the image of the invisible God, this clearest picture that we have of God's character. Or to use Jesus' own words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. But similarly, or correlatively, something like that, alongside of that, whatever word I'm looking for, we believe that Jesus reveals to us what human flourishing is all about. That Jesus is fully human. And that what we see in his life is this expression of humanity with a beauty and an integrity and a selflessness and a confidence, a humility and a grace that is unmatched by any other person ever. And so if you want to find the master class about how to be a human being, the only one fully qualified teacher is Jesus himself. At the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. When it comes to wisdom, Jesus is both the teacher and the lesson. But here's the thing that we discover as soon as we begin to, st begin to start taking Jesus seriously and we start to follow him toward God or into a life of being a human, when you start with Jesus, you very quickly get to scripture, right? Because Jesus was both a diligent student of the scriptures and he taught the scriptures as a kind of authoritative teacher unlike any other Bible teacher ever came before or has come since. Jesus was a diligent student of the scriptures. And so if we're learning how to be human beings by taking Jesus's masterclass, one of the first lessons we pick up is his habit of studying, meditating upon, and praying the scriptures. Just think to Jesus's own temptation in the wilderness, one of the first stories that we find of his life right after his baptism. He's launched into the wilderness by the Spirit, right? And he finds himself in this 40-day ordeal of hardship where he's hungry and he's tempted. And in that space, what do we find Jesus doing? He quotes a lot of scripture, quotes a lot of scripture when he's starving and the tempter comes to him offering bread. What does Jesus say? But the humans don't live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's like God's word is another kind of food that Jesus is nourishing himself with. And even as he's doing that, he's speaking forth words from the very scriptures that he studied as like an almost, almost like a script that he's living by as he inhabits that difficult time and space. Jesus' situational wisdom, if you just look through his own life, if you look at the, the kinds of conversations he gets into with the religious leaders or the kinds of gotcha questions people want to push on him, you know, Jesus, his situational wisdom is this artful approach in which he's like both deeply, deeply formed in the ancient scriptures and knows them to the core of his being, and he's, he's nimble. He's got this ability to flex in situations and to artfully know exactly how to apply these things. He's not operating within some rigid, uh, rigid scheme that he's been given, but rather being deeply traditioned and having meditated deeply and feasted upon the word of God. He's able in real life situations to show up as a real human being in real time, not just being on autopilot, but being one who loves his neighbor. And then similarly in Jesus' prayer life, when you see him even in his own darkest moments, think of the moment at the cross where you see him praying. He's praying the Psalms, that the word of God dwells in him so deeply and richly that in his moment of anguish, these are the very words he speaks as his own. So Jesus, being this diligent student of the scriptures, model for, models for us what it looks like for that word to dwell in us richly, Right? for us to be meditating upon the word of God in such a way that we would be similarly like the tree planted by the deep stream of water. But Jesus is also this authoritative teacher of the scriptures. And if we want to listen for the voice of God in the scriptures, we need to read them with Jesus. If you just look at the passage from Luke 24 that we just read, beginning in verse 44, Jesus starts to talk about how everything written about me, he says, in the law of Moses, the prophets and Psalms, which are like the, the, the code words for like the three big sections of the Hebrew Bible. He's talking about the whole thing as being in some way about him. And then he says, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And if you just go back and try to figure out what the heck Jesus is talking about, you can't find proof texts where he's like opening up to this page in this verse and saying, see, I told you. You can't find it in so many words. But what Jesus is saying is that the life that he's come to live and the death that he's come to die and the resurrection that he's come to bring forth into the world as God's new creation bursting forth, that the story of Christ is the fulfillment of the story of the whole thing. That all of it has been unfolding toward him. Which is why when Jesus steps onto the scene and we begin to hear him talking about the Bible, he talks about it like somebody who wrote it, right? He talks about it like someone who's very free to relate to it in a new way, where he'll say things like, you've heard it written, or you've heard it said, or you've seen it written, but I say to you. And he'll go on and say something new. He steps onto the scene, not only as the fulfillment of scripture, but as the, but as the teacher who shows us how to read it ourselves. And so what we learn from Jesus in his life is both this dependence upon the scriptures for spiritual nourishment and an orientation to the scriptures that helps us recognize 
that they're situated under Jesus's own lordship, who's not only God's authorized interpreter and teacher, but the one in whom all of the story finds fullness. Jesus is the one who completes the story of scripture. And so ultimately, what we can say is that the story of the world that is told in our scripture is fulfilled in the story of Christ. And what it means to be a Christian in one sense is to be one who receives that story as our own and to be a people that will rehearse it together regularly in our worship and in our communal life and as we serve alongside our neighbors in seeking the common good. If you look at the passage that we just read from 2 Timothy, there the apostle Paul instructs Timothy, a young pastor and Paul's protege, to remain faithful to his calling amid all kinds of crazy challenges uh, that were facing Timothy as he was leading the church in Ephesus. There were several competing wisdoms that were tugging on the heads and the hearts of of the people there in the church. Uh, Roman persecution was literally threatening the lives of many of these early Christians. And there Timothy is pastoring that church. And what does Paul say to him? He urges Timothy to continue in the wisdom he's known thus far. And what he does, interestingly, is he appeals to both the source and the usefulness of that wisdom, right? With respect to both the gospel of Jesus that Timothy's learned from Paul and with respect to the Old Testament scriptures, which Timothy learned from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And Paul describes these scriptures as both breathed out by God and useful for instructing Timothy for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and for equipping all God's people for every good work. And I think, I hope this isn't like just simply stating the obvious, um, but I think it's important that we also notice what Paul does not say here. That he's not appealing um, to other things beyond the source and the usefulness as grounds for why scripture is to be read and heard and meditated upon. He's specifically not saying that the scriptures are pristine or divinely dictated or in some sense like a magical deposit of of divinely revealed information that we're simply to receive as principles and download and apply as though this were some sort of philosophy book or information manual given by God and not mediated through human writers. He doesn't say anything remotely like that. And it is true that many Christians, especially in this country and especially over the last couple of centuries, have treated the Bible like that. And many of us have grown up in contexts where we've been taught the Bible like that. But it's a view of Scripture, and I... You know, I don't want to pick a fight, but I, but I think it's actually important for our own healing and growth and for the good of this city and for our own growing in Christ-likeness. I, that's a view of Scripture that is way more modern than it is Christian. Uh, it comes from a modern notion of what the Bible must be in order to be true or what truth-telling must be. And, the, and an idea of truth that comes on the back end of the scientific revolution and the whole you know, advent of modernity and a way of thinking about knowledge and the human person and all this stuff, it doesn't come from within the Bible itself. It doesn't come from the apostolic tradition itself. And so having imbibed a a notion of the Bible that is almost like 
this sort of magical information book, Christians, especially in the Western world, and many of us, and me included, have said really dumb things and have, have said a lot of weird things and done weird things with the Bible. And the reaction, the result, is maybe exactly what we should expect. That the response in our world to this impossibly modern notion of what the Bible must be has been both a mass exodus from the church, especially by young people, and like a freak out overreaction from within the church to all the people who are leaving, right? And so it's been a doubling down on both sides of what was actually the wrong debate to begin with. Uh, it's, been, it's, it's an assumption about what the Bible must be and people are having arguments over, given that that assumption is true, then should we stay or should we go, right? And it's a fighting over staying and going. When in reality, what the problem is, is we've allowed a modern concept of what truth-telling is to shape what we think the Bible is. And we've dug our heels in. And rather than simply receiving the gift God gives us that is from a source that is unimpeachable, God himself, and is profoundly useful for forming us in the likeness of Christ and equipping us for every good work, we've tried to make it play by another playbook and do all kinds of things that it just isn't prepared to do. And we've gotten weird. And people have found us weird and they've left. And I think one of the opportunities we have as the church in this age and in this place is to heal from that, to recognize that, to repent of that, to confess how we've been weird and unhelpful, and to receive the gift afresh in a way that it brings life to us in new ways that orient us toward our neighbor helpfully as students of Christ and fellow workers with Christ and what he's doing in the world. It's neither the scriptures themselves nor the rejection of a wrong-headed approach that's the problem. It's the churches doing weird and unhelpful things. And when we play by the playbook of the culture wars, that's just what we do. We, we do fear-driven, unhelpful things. But when we receive the scriptures as they are, as a gift from God, as food for our souls, as God-inspired, trustworthy witness to God's faithfulness, as useful for our training in faith, and equipping us for good works as our own family story and history, that this is the story of our people, the covenant people of God whom he brought through the sea and into the land and back from exile and even up from the grave, that this is our story that we carry and inhabit and share with the world. That's when we begin to actually approach the scriptures as people who expect to hear God's voice and be changed as those who come to listen to God and feed upon Christ. In his book, Scripture and the Authority of God, N.T. Wright offers what I find to be a compelling survey of much of the problematic situation in the Western church today with respect to what we do with the Bible and how Christians on the ideological left and right, respectively, have allowed a modernistic approach to infect our witness and mission, which has led to a deep polarization and really an unnecessary division in the church. And so after Wright takes his readers through a historical uh, survey and a tour of all that's gone badly wrong, he doesn't just leave us there with some sort of like doomsday uh, prophecy, but he offers a really helpful, concrete way forward that I love. And he says that what the church needs is to recover its understanding that God is currently at work bringing to completion his sovereign and saving plan for the entire cosmos, which is a plan that he has dramatically inaugurated in Jesus himself and is now implementing through the spirit-led life of the church precisely as the scripture reading community. And to recover this identity and vocation of the church as the scripture reading community 
Wright offers a multifaceted approach to scripture, to reading it, interpreting it, and offering it to the world that's contextual and liturgical and privately studied and publicly proclaimed and refreshed by appropriate scholarship and taught by the church's leaders while also being studied at home and that is thoroughly shaped by recognizing that it is an unfolding story that finds its fullness in Christ. And it's the story God gives us to receive as our own, as well as the story of the world. As the American church is in desperate need of renewal, I think this renewal of a practice of having scripture centrally located in our life together is right at the heart of the kind of renewal that's needed. And I think two metaphors that guide us, and I'll just close us with this, are the metaphors of listening and eating. We come to scripture to listen, and we come to scripture to feed. We listen to the voice of God. And we listen to the voice of God, not just in the pages of the book, but in also the community that's also reading and applying the scriptures to life. We listen for the voice of God in one another. We listen for the voice of God whose spirit testifies with our spirit that he is our father. We listen for the voice of God from our neighbors and we listen in the scriptures and worship of the church. But we also come for nourishment. We come to feed because as Jesus said, no one lives by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And one uh, illustration of this that I found so encouraging comes from Tish Warren from her book, A Liturgy of the Ordinary, where she talks about taco soup that she's having for lunch the day that she's writing this chapter. And she likens uh, her scripture study habits as being reminiscent of the taco soup that she's about to eat, which she says is not going to be particularly memorable. She's preparing for a lunch that is relatively ordinary. And she writes this. There are a few good meals I remember and there are a few terrible meals that I remember, but most of the meals I've eaten, thousands upon thousands, were utterly unremarkable. If you asked me what I ate for lunch three weeks ago on Monday, I could not tell you, and yet the average forgettable meal nourished me. Thousands of forgotten meals have brought me to today. They've sustained my life. They were my daily bread. We are endlessly in need of nourishment and nourishment comes usually like taco soup, abundant, and overlooked. Word and sacrament sustain my life, and yet they often do not seem life-changing. Quietly, even forgettably, they feed me. There are times when we approach scripture, whether in private study or gathered worship, and find it powerful and memorable. Sermons we quote and carry around with us, stories we tell of being impacted and changed. There are other times when the scriptures seem as unappetizing as stale bread. I'm bored or confused or skeptical or repulsed. There are times when I walk away from scripture with more questions than answers. How should we respond when we find the word perplexing or dry or boring or unappealing? We keep eating. We receive nourishment. We keep listening and learning and taking our daily bread. We wait on God to give us what we need in order to sustain us one more day. We acknowledge that there is far more wonder in this life of worship than we yet have eyes to see or stomachs to digest. We receive what has been set before us as a gift. Friends, I hope you find that as inspiring and helpful as I do. May God give us grace to eat and to listen to the wisdom that is Christ, who is the bread and the water of life.
Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for your son Jesus, who is your word made flesh, who lived and died and rose again among us. And we do give you thanks for your holy scriptures that you have breathed out through authors over so many thousands of years. These texts that we receive and inherit as a treasure store for our own growth, wisdom that connects us to the ancients and that informs us even in our own time and place. We do pray that by your spirit, you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renew our wills, that we might actually receive you and walk in the way of wisdom that is actually good for us and glorious for you and good for our neighbors. And we confess that we deeply need your help for that to be true. So would you send your spirit and make us a community that is actually not a scary and unsafe place to have conversations that expand our minds and enlarge our hearts? But would you instead quicken us by your spirit, open our minds, and give us a deep sense of freedom and belonging in Christ that allow us to go forth into your world, not in fear, but freedom and love as bearers of your goodness and truth and listeners to you and to our neighbor. Do this good work in us, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen.